The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, you magical people, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Gina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Dun-dun-dun. This is our second chapter. So excited. So, here we go. Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass. This chapter starts off 10 years after Harry was left on the Dursley's doorsteps by Professor McGonagall and Professor Dumbledore and, of course, the beloved Hagrid. This chapter highlights the significant abuse and bullying that Harry was exposed to living at the Dursley's. Harry was physically abused by Dudley and mentally abused by his aunt and uncle, and he was avoided by other kids at school. To say he was very lonely would be an understatement, don't you think? Absolutely. How does this type of behavior and treatment create mental health struggles? And what is the best strategy to help victims of this nature? I'm really glad you brought that up. Unfortunately, a lot of kids experience abuse and neglect in the way that Harry did. Emotional abuse, such as the one that Harry experiences, is something that a lot of people go through. And I think a lot of people don't talk about Unfortunately, there's this old expression, I think it's over 200 years old now, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, this statement is actually a fallacy. It's not true. Scientific evidence, especially neuroscience evidence, shows us that when we experience emotional abuse, such as bullying, teasing, and the kind of put-downs that Harry goes through, the kind of deliberate insults, our brain responds in the same way as if we were physically being abused and beat up. The pain center of our brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, is responsible for pain perception, and the same area lights up in our brain when we're being physically assaulted as when we are being emotionally abused. And in fact, survivors of chronic emotional abuse are likely to have difficulties when they grow up with either depression or anxiety or certain core beliefs such as I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable. And the kind of trauma that we experience in childhood can actually affect how we feel about ourselves, about other people, and about the world in adulthood sometimes. We actually see that later when Harry first starts making friends, that sometimes it's challenging for him to trust that people are going to be supportive. He blows up at people. But in this chapter, we see him as this kind of meek and quiet little boy who's trying to avoid 
his cousin Dudley. He's trying to hide from his relatives. He's just trying to be obedient and to do everything his relatives tell him. Up! Get up! Now! Oh, here he comes, the birthday boy! Happy birthday, son! <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just cook the breakfast and try not to burn anything? Yes, Aunt Petunia. I want everything to be perfect for my Dudley's special day. Hurry up! Bring my coffee, boy! Yes, Uncle Vernon. In the movie and in the book, we see uh, potential signs that his aunt might have been hitting him too. I believe in the book, we see him ducking from the frying pan. And so there's some suggestions that he might have been physically abused as well. When we learn about somebody being abused in this way, if they're a child especially, this is something that we'd need to report to child welfare services or the police so that that child can be supported. A lot of people think that if they report a case of child abuse, that that child will automatically be taken away. And that's not true. The child would only be removed from their parents if there are significant threats to that child's life. So if the child is being continuously, let's say, sexually abused and if their life is in danger. If the child is undergoing the kind of emotional abuse and physical abuse like Harry was, most likely the first step of what would happen if this was to be reported to the authorities is that social workers and child welfare services might intervene and provide educational programs for the parents and teach them how to be more loving and more caring and more accepting toward their child. The family would be provided with family therapy and only if the abuse continues, you know, would there be a potential risk of that child being taken away. So I think in Harry Potter's case, if this was to be reported to child welfare services, chances are there would be some kind of an intervention and the Dursleys might actually at the very least try to change some of their behavior toward Harry, which is something that we're going to talk about it when we're talking about our next chapter, when they realize that their behavior is being watched, when they realize that somebody does know about the way that they're treating Harry. In this case, Harry has been so used to being abused, it doesn't even phase him. I think he's just trying to get out of harm's way. And it's clear how much he resents his cousin and his relatives. Having someone try to hit you with a pan is very threatening, <laughs> in my opinion. But It is threatening. It yeah. is threatening. And what's really sad, too, is that Harry naturally has questions about what happened to his parents, as any child would in Harry's situation. And sadly, his aunt and uncle choose to lie to him about what happened to them, then tell him to stop asking questions, which is really difficult when a child is trying to figure out what happened to his parents. I know, they're trying to erase his parents like they're trying to erase him by putting him under the cupboard anyway. What I want to get into right now is Dudley's birthday. For Dudley's birthday, his parents get him 36 presents and he throws a temper tantrum. How many are there? 36. Counted them myself. 36? But last year, last year I had 37! Uh, yes, well, well, some of them are quite a bit bigger than last year. I don't care how big they are! No, 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 no. This is what we're going to do. Is that when we go out, we're going to buy you two new presents. How's that, Pumpkin? Instead of setting boundaries with their son, Dudley, they continually spoil him and they're practically walking on eggshells to promise him to get two more presents later. What 
do these behaviors say about the Dursley family? It looks like Vernon and Petunia are raising their son to be completely entitled. I don't know Vernon's backstory, but Petunia might be overcompensating for maybe not feeling special enough in her parents' eyes, perhaps trying to make Dudley feel as special as possible, but neither one of them is doing Dudley any favors. They're raising a very selfish, very self-absorbed child. When a child receives any birthday presents, they ought to be grateful. When he throws a fit like that, by reinforcing his inappropriate behavior, they're essentially telling him that it's okay, that him demanding more presence is appropriate, and that somehow they're at fault for not giving him enough presence. In doing this, they're letting him know that it's okay to demand things as if he's entitled to a large amount of presence on his birthday, as if it is perfectly okay and reasonable for him to hit and throw and yell and talk to his parents in such a disrespectful way. And unfortunately, by reinforcing this behavior, by giving into this behavior and giving him what he wants, they're making this behavior more likely to occur in the future. It's very interesting to see their treatment towards Harry and their treatment towards Dudley. I mean, I realize that Dudley's their son and everything, but they totally alienate Harry and ignore him and basically treat him as this horrible servant boy, either servant boy or just inconvenience. Yes. And then Dudley is just like completely spoiled. It's like misplaced love or something. What is it? You know, again, I don't know where Vernon comes from, but I think Petunia, what we know about her history what we know is that because her sister Lily, Harry's mom, got to go to Hogwarts and Petunia didn't, even though she tried, even though she wrote Dumbledore multiple letters asking to be accepted, I think Petunia held a lot of resentment. She was angry that her parents loved Lily and that they were proud to have a witch in the family. And I think Petunia was really resentful that her sister was being seen as special and she wasn't. And I think that in seeing Harry, it's a reminder of unequal treatment that she received. And I think that she might be overcompensating and treating Dudley far superior to Harry as a result. I'm wondering if she and Vernon would be acting any differently toward Dudley if Harry wasn't there. Like, I'm wondering if her resentment of Harry and Lily is almost making her spoil Dudley more because of Harry's presence. That's another interesting thing that just came up was other people's issues being reflected upon some innocent other person. Sometimes you're going through a bad day or something like that, and the person that's next to you gets the brunt of your anger, or the brunt of your issues as it goes. That's called projection. So when we're angry at one particular person, but we're unable to take it out on them or to talk it out with them, we might take it out on someone else, someone closest to us. For example, if our teacher or our boss is rude to us, we might then snap at a family member because we might be too threatened or too intimidated to snap at the teacher or at our boss. In Petunia's case, she's not able to talk it out with Lily. She's not able to process things with Lily or their parents. I don't actually know what happened to their parents. It doesn't look like they're still alive anymore. But she's not able to process her resentment and her jealousy. So she takes it out on Harry. And it does seem like her own hurt is then affecting her relationship with her nephew. 
there's an expression, hurt people hurt people. And I think that's very much what we're seeing here. I think that Petunia's own hurt about the way that Lily was treated and about Lily's acceptance to Hogwarts and Petunia's rejection from Hogwarts is making her treat Harry in a really mean and awful way. There's so many problems with that family. There are. There are. And I think it's it's really common to see that bullying behavior might come from jealousy and envy. It's not uncommon to see some kids bullying other kids because they might be envious of, let's say, their grades or their relationship with their parents or something else that that kid might have. And I think Petunia is almost regressing to childhood. She's acting in almost childlike behavior around Harry where she's bullying him. She's Yeah. There's also that superiority complex where people want to feel better than someone else. Like the Dursleys feel better than everybody else. They push their nose up to everybody else. And I've seen that when I was in high school. The bullies would pick on the people who were different or weird or whatever just to feel a little bit more superior than them. So this is actually the struggle with self-esteem, right? So a couple of decades ago, I think it was in the 1980s, all of these research papers were saying that kids have really low self-esteem, so we need to boost their self-esteem to make them feel good about themselves. And this is around the time that Harry and Dudley were growing up, right, in the 80s. They were both born in 1980, if I remember correctly. As a result of this self-esteem movement, a lot of parents and teachers were trying to make all the students feel like they're the best at everything and they were trying to hide the kids' flaws or any imperfections. Unfortunately, it creates self-entitlement and narcissism. The issue with self-esteem is not that self-esteem is bad, it's how we get it that makes a difference. So researcher Kristen Neff actually talks a lot about this in her work. And she says that when we strive for self-esteem by putting other people down, when we get our self-esteem by being better than other people, that's more likely to lead to narcissistic kind of behaviors as well as even bullying, for example. And racism and prejudice and all that good of stuff. Of course, of course. And but, that's where it starts, creating that self-esteem within one group by making the other group feel worse than. In fact, some of the highest levels of self-esteem have been found in gang members. A lot of gangs function on creating this us versus them structure, in-group and out-group, saying that our in-group is superior to that other group. And as a result of that, self-esteem becomes really, really high for the members of that group. And the view of other might make these individuals even violent and prejudiced toward anyone that doesn't look like them or belongs to another group. And we're seeing the beginning of that here in the Dursleys about how it might start with creating this attitude that being non-magical, for example, is better than being magical or being a Dursley is better than being a potter. And although the Dursleys at this point have not explained to Harry or Dudley about why they're treating the two boys differently, there's a clear discrepancy in this us versus them mentality. And Dudley's definitely seeing that and using that to his advantage to bully Harry. Very interesting. Like I said earlier, that family has a lot of issues. And an interesting situation is that Harry lives in a small cupboard under the stairs. By being there, he's robbed of his freedom, he's alienated from others, and he's 
treated as though he's kind of a captive instead of part of the family. And it's so interesting that J.K. Rowling chose the zoo as a backdrop for this first magical incident that we actually get to see with Harry. Do you have any thoughts on this correlation? I mean, I don't know if J.K. Rowling did that intentionally or not, but for me as a reader and as a psychologist, I thought that was really interesting, right? These metaphors kind of juxtapositions together in one chapter. Harry living in the cupboard, which is a place that we store our non-perishables, you know, and perhaps linens or paper towels. So he's essentially living in a closet. When we learn in later chapters that Dursleys actually have a guest room and Dudley has two bedrooms. So really there's no reason why Harry should be living in a cupboard or a closet. If we're to think of it as a metaphor, no one should ever have to live in the closet. No one should ever hide from who they are and what they stand for. There was a case study that was published a couple of years ago where this very chapter was being used to help a young boy essentially come out of his closet, essentially embrace his own sexuality. This little boy was a big Harry Potter fan and wanted to be able to be open about his sexuality and in talking it over with his therapist was able to come out to his friends and family who thankfully were not the Dursleys and who were very supportive and very kind and encouraging. Again, I don't want to speculate about J.K. Rowling's intentions. I sadly have not ever met her. I'm hoping one day I will. But I think that metaphorically speaking, we're seeing Harry living in this closet and no one should ever have to hide who they are. He's being punished for who he is, for his heritage. And I think the Dursleys are trying to imprison him, oppress him, and almost like shun the magic out of him. But as we're learning in this chapter, trying to suppress someone's magic is likely to backfire in other ways. It's interesting because this is the first chapter that mentions an incident that happened with Harry and his magic just kind of overtaking him. Petunia was cutting his hair and then his hair grew back the next day and she punished him for that. But magical things happened to him regardless of whether or not he knew he was a wizard. It was just part of who he was. And the more you suppress it, the more it just comes to fruition, like the vanishing glass at the zoo with the snake and all that. It's interesting too that on the way to the zoo, Harry mentions that he had a dream about a flying motorcycle. And this is in reference to him remembering Hagrid bringing him to the Dursley's doorstep as a baby. Uncle Vernon immediately responds that motorcycles can't fly. He just wants to cut that off. What do you think he's so afraid of about these dreams and about magic just in general? I think both Vernon and Petunia are so ingrained in this racist, very prejudiced view of magical folks. And they're so scared that Harry will become magical, and of course he's becoming magical, that even having a dream about something that could potentially be magical is scary to them. I'm warning you now, boy. Any funny business, any at all, and you won't have any meals for a week. I think that this is perhaps parallel to what happens in some families that might be, for example, homophobic, where if their child might even mention that they either had a dream of sexual nature with someone of the same sex, or maybe they've seen a movie like that, or, or if their friend is gay, that their family might have a really extreme kind of reaction, and this reaction comes from fear. 
I think that people really fear what they don't understand. And Vernon probably has very little exposure to magic at this point, And Petunia has grown to resent it and hate it. So I think that even Harry talking about a dream or a children's book or, you know, anything else that he might have ever brought up in the past is likely to create this kind of reaction, which comes from fear and prejudice. We're talking about how horrible the Dursley's living situation is. And we also don't really discuss the other magical part of Harry, which is that even though he's surrounded by all this negativity and this abuse, that he is this lovely, wonderful, kind, compassionate, strong, heroic child. He totally just skipped any of that influence. And that's very magical all in itself. So after the glass vanishes at the zoo, Dudley and his friend Piers exaggerate about what happened to them. Dudley claims that the snake nearly bit off his leg and Piers claims that the snake tried to squeeze him to death, but none of that happened. The snake just wanted to go to Brazil or whatever. He just wanted to leave. Why do people exaggerate in this way and what might be the purpose of that? I think that for some people who might exaggerate certain stories, it might be to get attention and again to boost their self-esteem. I think for Dudley and Pierce, it was to appear more heroic than they actually did, right? Because actually they were terrified of that snake. To create some kind of a sense of an adventure for their otherwise pretty boring lives because Dudley at the very least has had everything spoon-fed to him since he was a little child. So because nothing really exciting happens to Dudley or Pierce, I think they're likely to exaggerate the stories of their lives to make their lives seem more interesting than they really are. And I think you're right that despite Harry's abuse and all the adverse experiences that he's had in his childhood, he's still a really compassionate and sweet and lovely little boy. What we see is that a lot of times people who experienced abuse and trauma might actually be more compassionate toward others, especially toward others who might have experienced something similar because they can empathize. They understand pain because they've been through it. So we see Harry actually empathizing with the snake at the zoo because he understands what it's like to live in captivity and he's able to really relate to it because the snake has never been to Brazil and Harry has never really known his parents. You know? But he can talk to it too, which is magical. And he can talk to it too. And again, I don't know J.K. Rowling's intention here, but I took it as, again, a metaphor, not only that, you know, of course, Harry's parcel tongue, he can talk to snakes, but in this case, I took it as a metaphor for Harry being able to talk to people or animals who have experienced abuse. Make it move! 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 He's asleep! He's boring. Sorry about him. He doesn't understand what it's like lying there day after day, watching people press their ugly faces in on you. Can you hear me? It's just... I've never talked to a snake before. Do you... I mean, do you talk to people often? You're from Burma, aren't you? Was it nice there? Do you miss your family? I see. But that's me as well. I never knew my parents either. We know that trauma survivors can understand other trauma survivors. It's almost like they're speaking the same language. 
That's very much what we're seeing here. And Harry can very much empathize with what the snake has been through. And I think that we see him being happy for the snake about its received freedom, something that I think Harry really badly wants to have here. Man, I think this conversation is so interesting. There's this like revolving circle of self-esteem that I'm noticing just in our conversation. It's like self-esteem is causing the Dursleys to act in a certain way. And then their actions are causing someone else's self-esteem to decline. It's just very interesting how important self-esteem is to these incidents. This was a wonderful chapter. We thank you so much for tuning in. We can probably analyze each chapter for hours because we just love it and we just love the topic. But we do have to end this episode of Harry Potter Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill. Thank you all for tuning in, you magical people. Have a great day. And don't forget to subscribe.